scripture reading for today is from Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is the with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Wow, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, and uh, I am uh, I am the, the pastor of the city congregation of Redeemer Winter Haven, and so I, it's, it's a joy just to be able to get away. Pastors like to, to go to other churches sometimes. It's fun to see what other people are doing, and uh, we love you guys. We pray for you all the time. You're a part of us, and so it's great for me to be able to be with you this morning. So thank you, thank you for, uh, for being here and for allowing that. Now, if you've been recently, you may be thinking, wait, I thought we were preaching through the book of Acts, so why is this a sermon on Ephesians 4? Uh, one of the great things about being uh, not in my church, you know, people, when you have to preach to the same people over and over again, they, they learn all your stories and they know all, all your stuff, and so you get to go other places, and although there's a lot of you probably have heard some of those stories, but so I get to kind of like do my material with you and you've never heard it before. Uh, one of the things that you would not know about me, uh, but some of you might, is that I'm a huge, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and uh, there's some way to find, always you can find, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings um, illustration put in almost every sermon. Uh, but if you're familiar with the story, it's this great adventure story, right? Uh, uh, you know, this fantastical um, world and this, this uh, the end of the world is coming and yet there's an intervention and there's great battles and all these kinds of things, all the things you would, you would expect from a fantasy story. But uh, they asked J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the story one time, really what the book was about, uh, and he said it really is a story of a friendship. So, so the real story inside that great story that everybody's so aware of was the story of a friendship between um, Frodo and Sam, which, if you're, again, if you're familiar, you know this. Uh, and it's interesting to me because really the book of Acts is about the, be- the closest thing we have to a Christian equivalent to something like the Lord of the Rings. We see the church going out on mission, and there's supernatural things happening. People are being thrown in jail, and the angels come and, and supernaturally release them and all of these sorts of things. But if you look closely at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really the story within the story, the real story 
behind the story of the book of Acts is a story of, about a friendship. And particularly, I want to make the case to you this morning, there is a man uh, that we meet multiple times in the book of Acts. His name is Barnabas. And I'm going to make the case this morning that Barnabas is really the unsung hero of everything we read about in Acts. Not Paul, not Peter, uh, not any of the big names, not any of the guys with international ministries, but this, this guy that could go unnoticed, if you're not careful, named Barnabas. And I want to prove this to you. So this, we are going to go to Ephesians 4, because Ephesians 4 really is a text about what friendship looks like, but I want you to see Barnabas first before we do that, okay? Uh, his name is actually not Barnabas, it's Joseph. Now, his nickname is Barnabas. And of course, when you nickname somebody, what are you trying to do when you nickname somebody? You're, 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 the nickname is usually something that's characteristic of them or something that they're known for, whatever the case might be. So this man, his name's Joseph. He was called Barnabas. Uh, and here's your Bible trivia for this morning. Anybody know what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. And so this man was known. I mean, this man was known to be a good friend. That's what he was known for. It was his nickname. And there are a number of scenes where you see this played out in the book of Acts. If you, come, you, know, if you have a Bible and you want to turn, you can. I'll, just, I'll tell you the story on, 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 its, on its own merit if you, if you prefer. But in Acts 9, I think two weeks ago, Jeff talked about Saul, this, this great persecutor of the church, being converted. And uh, immediately Saul comes to Jerusalem after his conversion to meet with the apostles. And no one, no one will see him. He can't, he can't get in. He can't get a meeting with the leaders of the church. They're all afraid of him, of course, just days, weeks before he's been killing Christians, rounding them up and throwing them in, into prison. And so this new Christian, this man Saul, who will become the great missionary Paul, has come to meet with him. He can't get a meeting. And then Barnabas steps in in Acts 9, 27. And Barnabas befriends Paul. He vouches for him. He brings Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem, Jerusalem and that got Paul in the door. And the rest, as they say, is history. We meet, we meet him again in Acts chapter 11. And in Acts 11, word comes to the apostles in Jerusalem again that the Gentile Christians uh, have begun to believe and were coming to faith. Now, this created a lot of suspicion among the Jewish um, sects of the church. And so they needed someone to go in and investigate exactly what was going on. Well, who do you think they sent? They sent Barnabas. Now, I have my ideas as to why. I think because... Uh, he was, uh, you know, he just, he just was a very discerning man. The scripture says he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Barnabas goes. The first thing he does is he goes and gets Saul, brings Saul with him, Paul, with him to Antioch. Uh, and then they go to Antioch together. And then over the course of a year, they turn the Antioch church into a missionary force for the next 400 years. And really, the, the mission of the church is launched from that place that Barnabas goes there in Antioch, not in Jerusalem. And then in a third scene... In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are about, they've gone on their first missionary journey together. They're about to embark on their second missionary journey, if you know the story, to go back to all these churches that they've planted to encourage them and so forth. Barnabas wanted to take a man named John Mark. Paul was not up with that because they had taken John Mark on their first journey and somewhere in the middle of the way through that journey, he left when things got hard and went back home. It's time to head off again. Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. Paul says no. And actually, it becomes, it becomes a reason for a schism between the two of them. And so they go their separate ways. Paul takes Silas instead of John Mark and goes off. Barnabas befriends John Mark 
and the two go, and so it's actually a multiplication of ministry in the world. Now, here's what I want you to see. That's such a beautiful story there for me. Barnabas willing to take a chance on this young man. That's the kind of man he was. He risked with grace. He believed in Paul when nobody else did. He was willing to move towards him. He was willing to look past John Mark's previous failures to give him a second chance, even when Paul, even when Paul, who wrote all this about forgiving and being patient and gentle and all that stuff, even when that guy wouldn't, wouldn't uh, you know, give John Mark a chance at all. But here's what I want you to see. Without Barnabas's vision, here's my contention. We wouldn't have Paul's letters, and we wouldn't have Mark's gospel. Think about that for a minute. Without this man Barnabas, and just the beauty of what it looks like to be friends. Now, I want a friend like Barnabas, and I, I want to be a friend like Barnabas. I want friends like Barnabas. I think there's a lot for us to to talk about here. But here's the other thing. I want you to know this is important to us as a church because uh, we are a part of a larger network, not just Redeemer City and Redeemer Winter uh, Southwest, but even the churches in, Trin- in Lakeland, Trinity Presbyterian Church, and others that have planted us as a part of a church planting movement. The six churches that we're a part of, the pastors of those churches are friends. We meet every week, every week on, on Wednesday mornings for a couple of hours to pray together, help one another with our sermons, dig into one another's lives. We go away together a couple times a year. Uh, to have fun with one another. The core group that planted Redeemer City that I pastor was made up of two different groups of longtime friends that befriended one another in the planting of the church. Our leaders there are friends. Uh, my associate pastor, Jonathan Winfrey, was my, my uh, college roommate, believe it or not. I know some of you know him and are thinking, how in the world did that happen? Um, I'd like to say he's become even more human because of 20 years of friendship with me. Uh, David Smith who is our director of ministries there, um, is the reason that I'm in ministry to begin with. He married Ashley and I 20 years ago. And so you see, friendship's a really important part of what we do. In five years there, our session has never taken a single vote that wasn't unanimous. We don't even really vote. There's no contentiousness whatsoever. When it came time to plant a church, I called Jeff. Why? Jeff was in my youth group. How many years ago now? How old are you? <laughs> 15 years ago, probably. I've known him for that long. Why did I call Jeff? Because we're friends. And because the, 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 um, the bedrock of ministry, of our ministry strategy in the city is friends. It's why Redeemer City and Redeemer Southwest working together are so important because what, what Winter Haven needs more than anything else, what would heal our, our city spiritually, I think, more than anything else is to witness churches not looking at one another as competitors but befriending one another towards goals in the city. These are important things. Uh, friendship is really, really, is a really important, so I think, it's, I think it's worth our time this morning. Now, one warning before we come to the text in Ephesians 4, and that is just this. Now, as I begin to talk, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want, as I talk, for you to begin to think, well, why, why don't I have friends like that? And start to, think, start to think in your mind of the names of everybody who has failed you in the way, that I'm, the way that I'm showing we should be loving one another. Because here's the thing, here's what I believe more than anything else. You don't find friends, you make friends. You don't find friends, you make friends. You get friends by becoming a good friend. And the gospel is the power to make you a good friend. And when you become a good friend, you'll look around and realize that you have all the friends you need. So let's not, let's not immediately start to think, I wonder why nobody's like that to me. And let's, let's really focus on ourselves and ask hard questions about the kind of friend that we are this morning. Can we do that? You promise to be there with me? The sermon will be a lot more effective if we start there, okay? All right, so let's come to this, this Ephesians 4 passage, and here's what I want you to see. Three things. 
so we're talking, Barnabas is the backdrop. And so everything that we're going to say here out of Ephesians 4, I have Barnabas in mind. There's just not as much text in, uh, in Acts to really get at some of these things. So here's what I want you to see. I want to first show you what gospel friendship is. Secondly, I want, I want to show you why we need it so badly. And then thirdly, I want to show you how we get the power to do it. So what, what it means to be a friend, why we need to be a friend, and why we need friends so badly. And then thirdly, where or how we can get the power uh, to become the kind of friend uh, that we need. Okay, so let's, let's just walk through this together first. So what, what are gospel friendships? Of course, uh, as I describe what a friendship is, I'm describing what it's not, and so we're going to get caught here. We're going to be confronted by our sin here and our need for repentance, and so just be aware of that. That's what I said just a minute ago. So we want to look at the whole and then the parts. That's what I want to do. And, and the whole here, the big picture, is that this is a text about the church and what the church should be like and what the goal of the church's ministry should be. And the word, if you read in Ephesians 4, that keeps coming up over and over again is the word build. Okay, so first you look there, the church has been given pastors and teachers, but they're not actually the ones to do the majority of the work in the church, we're told. They equip the body to do the work of ministry, which is defined in verse 12, look there, as building up the body of Christ. So there's that word build. Paul goes on from there to describe what this looks like. He, he describes a spiritually mature group of people, confident in what they know and believe, and fully equipped so that every part is working together properly. And when this happens, verse 25, again, the result is that the church begins to build itself up in love. So there is a particular emphasis in Ephesians 4 on the way we use our words. And down in verse 29, he goes on. So we are to only use our words. We're going to come back to this in a minute. But look there in verse 29. Words are to be used only for what? Building up. So there's this emphasis on build. Friendships, friends build one another. Now, you know, I don't know, my kids, have, I have four children, uh, but they're growing older now. But one of the things, if we ever got into a crisis moment on a birthday or at Christmas time, what are we going to buy somebody? We, our fallback was always, this was before Legoland came to the city, but our fallback was always those little packs of Legos, like the Batman car that you can buy that has 150 pieces and you put it all together and then you have a Batman car, you know what I'm talking about? These little, like, the others are overwhelming. Like, we have these, we have, like, tubs of Legos at our house. That's like, stresses me out and is overwhelming. But the little things where you sit down on a rainy afternoon for a couple of hours and follow the instructions to put it together, you know what I'm talking about? I think it's a fit analogy for the way relationships works, work in our lives. We come into one another's lives a lot of times in pieces, not already put together. Uh, the hurts and the losses we experience in life have broken us most times into a million pieces, and we need to be put back together. So what this word build means is that friendship is coming alongside of one another in such a way uh, that we do that, that we begin to put the broken pieces of one another back together. We rebuild to compassionately, carefully, strategically, and with words. Let me say that again. Compassionately, carefully, strategically and with words, help put the pieces back together so we can be whole again. That's really what friends are. That's what they do. Now, that's what gospel friendship is, but, but how do we do it? What are the parts? And there are three things that I want to mention here from Ephesians 4 and elsewhere. So there are three. If that's the whole, if that's kind of the, the goal, if that's the aim, then, then here are some of the parts, and there are three. And the first is uh, that, that it's got to be in the... In the um, it's got to be within the confines of commitment. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a true friend sticks closer than a brother. Friends stick. You, you know you have a friend when, when it's somebody you can't get rid of even if you want to. 
friends, that, 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 that came home to a couple of people, right? You got, you're thinking, wow, I didn't realize those people were actually friends. Sometimes they are. Friends never give up on one another no matter what. They love stubbornly with no exit strategy. They're trapped. They feel sometimes trapped by their love for one another because friendship's covenantal. In friendship, you act upon your commitments and not your feelings because unlike in families, friends choose one another, you know? That's why a friend is better than a brother, Proverbs says, because you don't choose your siblings. You're kind of stuck with those people, right? Anybody give me an amen on that? Like, oh, man, you, you don't get to choose that. But, but, but uh, you know, a brother, uh, so, and so there's obligation there. A brother doesn't, uh, a brother has to be there for you. But a friend is a different thing. A friend is a person who wants to be there for you because he's chosen you. She's chosen you. And probably the best example in the Bible is Ruth and Naomi. If you remember that story, these two women, uh, and their husbands die, and custom would have dictated that the daughter, this is, the, and, and what's powerful about it, I don't know about you, but what is most amazing about this story, it really is the biblical story that models friendship, and the most amazing part about it is, is it's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law relationship. Hello. You with me? I'm sure none of you have had any of those kinds of experiences. And yet this daughter-in-law, who by custom should go back to her father's house and kind of start over her life, uh, decides, no, I'm going to stick with my mother-in-law no matter what. And here are her words to her. She says, I'm not leaving you. This, this is my paraphrase. I'm committed to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God for the rest of my life. Above, uh, above the, the bed in my bedroom, my wife gave me a gift a few years ago, that's a picture of the world with those words on it uh, because she knows my heart so desperately longs to hear those words from a friend. Uh, if, you, if you have seen the Harry Potter movies at the very end of the last movie, when Harry finally figures out that the only way to kill the bad guy, Voldemort, is that he has to sacrifice himself to die. It's probably it's my favorite scene in all eight of the movies, but he comes down the staircase, and there are Ron and Hermione again. This is a story of friendship, by the way. The Harry Potter really is a story about three friends and the power of friendship to redeem. And he comes down the stairs as he's headed out to meet his fate and to sacrifice his life. This should start to sound familiar to you. Um, he, he sees his friends there, and they say, where are you going? And he says, uh, you know, there's only, this is the only way. This is the only way for evil to be overcome, is for it to overcome me and for me to give my life. And his friend Hermione starts to cry. He says, I know you've known this for a long time. And she says she had, and then she, uh, yeah, I have. And then um, she runs to him and she embraces him and she says, I'll go with you. And I just, I saw it and fell apart because my heart, I don't know, maybe, maybe not you, but I can tell you for me, my heart, my heart more than anything else longs for somebody to, to look at me and to say, no matter where you go, I'll go with you. That's, that's what a friend does. The reason we take vows to one another in membership in our churches is because we believe, we live with a conviction that God has chosen us for one another and it's the commitment that we have to one another that sustains our love and friendship to one another, not the love that sustains the commitment. And this helps make sense of how Paul describes what our life should look like here in Ephesians 4. Uh, look up at the beginning of Ephesians 4. He says that we should be gentle and patient. This is verse 2. Bear with each other in love maintaining the bonds of the relationship no matter what. And then all the way at the end, he ends the chapter in the same way. He adds that we should be kind and tender, tender-hearted towards one another, always forgiving one another. Those are, those are hard things he's calling us to there. And it's the language of commitment. 
In other words, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many times you do it wrong, I'm going to be right here. I'm, gonna, I'm not going anywhere. You can't get rid of me. And when you do something really, really stupid, I'm not going to move away from you. Those are going to be the moments when I come even closer to you. Commitment. But the second part of friendship, I've got to move fast here, uh, is not only do you see this, this building happen when there's commitment, but also when there's vision. See, friendship is a building project, as we've said, And of course, you know that before you begin a building project, you first have to have a blueprint. And it's the blueprint that tells you what the house is going to look like when you're finished. It's the the blueprint is the vision for what you're building. So every truss, you know, every beam, every brick is determined by the blueprint. And in friendship, it's the same thing. You gotta you gotta know what you're building. And really, this is I think what we see in Barnabas the most. Barnabas Barnabas sees things in Paul and in John Mark that others don't see. His gift is really the gift of vision. Everybody else is looking for a finished product. Barnabas is looking for a great piece of marble that he can just go to work on, and that's the difference. And the idea is here in the passage, look down at verses 29 and 30, where Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, when we're unkind, when we are in the, the immediate context in verse 29, when we use our words to tear down others instead of build them up, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. We are, in other words, we are undoing what he's trying to do. And what is it that he's trying to do? What is the Holy Spirit's job? Verse 30 tells us that he is sealing us for the day of redemption. So it's the Spirit's job to get us to the day of redemption, the future day when we will stand before God and all the grime and the filth and the stain of our sin will fall off, and we will shine like the sun, and all the pieces that have been lying on the floor all those years will be finally put back together again, and we'll be whole. It's the Spirit's job. It's what He's doing in us to get us to that day. He comes alongside of us. He's the paraclete, right? He comes alongside of us uh, to do this work. Now, a friend is a person who joins the Spirit in the work that he is trying to accomplish in the life of somebody else. A friend who comes alongside with the Spirit, to work with the Spirit to get us to that day. Friends have a vision for the glory that will one day be ours. They get a sneak peek. They have the ability to see beneath our sin and failure to the beauty that's hidden there. Does that make sense? We moved a couple of years ago at our previous house in, um, in Garden Grove. Uh, John, John Wood um, built that neighborhood, and as he built it, he planted uh, oak trees, beautiful oak trees, so that the house is 40, 45, 50 years old, something like that, which meant the oak trees in our yard were about 50 years old. When we, when we moved in, we had three of these beautiful 50-year-old oak trees, and then uh, I was reminded this week, then Charlie came along, and uh, one of those ended up on top of our house, uh, actually through my kid's bedroom in the back, uh, and then uh, years later, we lost the one in the front yard on top of our house as well, so when we sold the house, there was only one left. Um, but, you know, these massive trees, uh, I, I thought uh, not long ago, these massive trees started as a simple acorn. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever driven by this just beautiful, massive 50-year-old oak tree, and you consider all of that started with a thing about, you know, a thing that you could hold in the palm of your hand. It really is a, it really is a great analogy, isn't it? Look around. Look around the room. Everywhere you look, every single person in this room is an acorn. The people you work with, the people in your neighborhood or in your small group, they are spiritual acorns. They're everywhere. Every human being that gets planted in the love and the power of God and and in the kindness of friendship in them, there's such beauty, there's such potential. 
there is such power, there's such stuff in there that's so beyond what they are right now. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, is after that glory, after that potential. He's working to get people to their glory selves on the day of redemption. And a friend is just the person who joins him in his work. And that's how you know. That's how you know when you have a friend, by the way. That's how you know when you're being a friend. A friend relates to you on the basis of your glory and not on the basis of your sins. A friend relates to you on the basis of what you're becoming, not necessarily what you are right now. Isn't that good news? You may want that. You're a friend when you have a vision of the person someone will be when their sin is no more and you commit yourself to them and walk beside them to see the glory and the beauty and the potential that you know is in there come out. You have a friend when someone's willing to do that for you, man. I don't know about you, my heart longs, my heart longs for people to do that with me. So there's commitment and there's vision. And then very quickly, lastly, I want, to, I want you to see there's also words. So notice the emphasis on words in Ephesians 4. Pastors and teachers use words to equip the saints for ministry, verse 12. And what is that ministry they're equipping people to? to? It's a ministry of words, speaking the truth in love, verse 15 to cause people to grow into maturity in Christ. So words have the power to destroy or to build up. So 29, verse 29, corrupting talk is not, is not cuss words necessarily. It's in context words that are meant to hurt and to wound. You can hurt people with your words. You can heal people with your words. So friends are, people, are careful with one, another, with one another with their words because they realize the power that exists in words. So let me just apply this. Let me, let me apply this and just say this. People ask me all the time, and I'm sure they do you, Jeff, as well. What can I do? How can I help, you know, with this church thing? You know, and what they typically want is a job. They want a ministry uh, of manning some post somewhere. They want to serve on a committee. But here's my suggestion to you. You want to you see, see the gospel explode in, in among you. You want to see it go forward. Uh, I think what we learn in Acts is the, the best thing you can do is find a place to be a friend. Find a place to be a friend because f- pursue friendship as an instrument of gospel advance. The people in the places where you live, work, and play. What if those were the friends that God has chosen for you? What if you're the friend uh, that God has chosen for them to draw them to himself? Friendship is actually a gospel strategy. Now I'm going to be very much, I'm gonna be very, uh, very much shorter from here on out. But let's, let's move on then. So we see here what friendship is. We've described and have a vision now. It's, 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 in, the, it's in the context of commitment and vision and than words. When those three things come together in a redemptive way, there's great, great healing. We begin to be put back together. We build one another. But, but also I want you to see why it is we need gospel friends. And I think that's here in this text as well. Why is this so important? Why are we spending the time uh, doing this? Well, here's, here's uh, I think, in the biblical story, there's a lot of uh, help for us here. In Genesis chapter 2, God comes to survey all these made. And in, and in the whole of creation, he finds only one thing wrong with everything that he's made. Everywhere he goes, it's fascinating. If you look there, those early chapters of Genesis, everywhere he goes, he says, oh, man, that's good. Oh, that's, that, you know, that's so good. Oh, that's good, too. Everywhere he looks and everything is good. And then there's only one thing. All of a sudden, the story is arrested with this, with this phrase that comes in Genesis 2.18. He says, oh, but, but it's not good for man to be alone. See, we're not built to go at life alone. We're not made to live in isolation from one another. So I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir, 
Introverts, listen up. Right? We have been created in the image of God. And God, according to historical Christianity, is Trinity. God, one person, three, excuse me, one God. Can't mess that up. Three persons. In other words, God is a friendship. And to be made in his image is to be made for friendship. So if you're lonely and sad because you want friends, for whatever reason, you've had a hard time finding good friends, that doesn't make you weak or needy. It means you're like God. If you don't need people, if you, don't, if you have no problem shutting people out and shutting yourself down, that means something's broken inside of you. It's not strength. You were made for community. And going in alone is a terrible life strategy. I'm not, a, I'm not one to ask for help. That doesn't make you strong. That's a betrayal of our humanity that we should be repenting of. Your soul needs friends the way your body needs food and water. And if you starve your body of food and water, it will eventually give out. And if you starve your soul of friendship, you will shrivel up and die spiritually. But what kind of community is the Trinity then? The Bible says that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each glorify the other persons. In other words, what you see in the Trinity and what's modeled for us is, you know, in, in how we're to live with one another is there's no self-centeredness among the persons of the Trinity whatsoever, only self-giving love. So each person orbits around the other, creating a sort of dance. And the early Christians even used a Greek word to describe this, perichoresis, which we get our word choreography from. So literally, it means to dance around. So all the different persons of the Trinity are constantly dancing around the others, putting the others at the center, never... never um, demanding or expecting that they themselves would be at the center and that everybody else would dance and celebrate them. So in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus is clear that this kind of com- is the kind of community that the church should be. Like a fish is made for water, we've been made for that kind of uh, community of friends where everybody is always putting everybody else first, where nobody is demanding to be at the center, which is exactly what our sin would do. Uh, you know, nobody demanding to be the point of reference where everybody else revolves around, but every person harbors all the other people at the center of their being and moves towards them in sacrificial, self-giving love. This is really the argument of the text in Ephesians 4. You see, for the first three chapters of his letter, Paul has been writing about God's love for his people. I mean, some of the most beautiful language in the whole Bible expressing the truth of God's free grace in Jesus Christ. And he ends chapter 3 Um, If you're familiar by saying, oh, I'm praying that you would come to know the full scope of God's love for you, right? The very end there, oh, the height and the depth and the width, oh, that you would know just your life would change if you could only come to see how much God truly loves you. And then he begins chapter four here, if you look at our text with, therefore, be gentle and patient with one another and so on. And that therefore connects the words in verses one and two with what he just said in chapter 3. In other words, get the argument. Here's the argument. The way you and I come to grasp the scope of God's love and grace is to experience his love and grace in a community of love and grace where people are gentle and patient and always forgiving one another. It's the only way it happens. We, exp- we, we come to know God's love in a community of love. Uh, if you're, uh, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite stories, gospel stories really, is uh, Les Mis. And I really love both the movie and the show. Uh, and I, I, anytime, if it's within 200 miles, we go. And I, I'm, y'all don't know me well, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a girl. I cry through the whole thing. And I could sing, I mean, I could sing it. I could sing it to you right now. I mean, the whole thing. I really could, word for word, probably. Because just, it just so resonates so deeply with me. But probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole story is, of course, well, Jean Valjean, this prisoner, 
um, who he stole a loaf of bread because he was poor and his, his sister's child was starving and he was trying to help them. He gets thrown into prison for years, finally gets out on parole, uh, is taken in by this priest. Uh, but in the middle of the night, he, he begins to rob the priest and runs away. He's eventually caught by the, by the authorities, brought back to the priest. So here he thinks, I'm going back to jail uh, you know, for longer this time. And the priest comes up to him and he says, you know, if you know this, he says, um, you know, why didn't you take the candlesticks too? These were a gift. And he, the priest basically lies for him, I guess you could say, or he, you know, he, he tells the authorities, don't worry, uh, this man's done nothing wrong. And they leave and, and Jean Valjean is just floored by this, by this act of mercy and, and grace that he's experienced on, uh, by, on the part of this priest. And when they leave, the priest looks at him and he says, I've bought your soul for God. And here's what he means. I mean, John, Jean Valjean's life was different from that moment on because he, he suddenly had emotional resources that before were unavailable to him. He becomes, as the story unfolds, a person of grace. With Fantine, with Colette, with, with, even with Javert. Right? I mean, the, the hinge of the whole story is the scene with the priest because when grace became real to him through... Uh, a tangible experience of the kindness of that priest. It changed his life forever. And here's my, here's my encouragement to you. A lifetime of pain can be undone in one act of true kindness. So here's, let me just apply this before we move on and come to, come to a close. Let me apply this in a couple of ways. Let me say to you first that the gospel that we talk about every week cannot be studied. It has to be experienced in friendship. Listen, you're not a gospel expert because you listen to Tim Keller or Matt Chandler podcasts about grace. You need to experience gospel community. But let me also apply it this way and say, pastorally, I've seen this over and over again, that most sin problems, people end up in my office wanting to talk to me about how their lives are falling apart. Most sin problems stem from no friend problems. If you look, Ephesians 4.27, give no, give no opportunity to Satan. Giving opportunity to Satan there is allowing yourself to be alienated from gospel community. I mean, have you ever watched a video of a, the pride of lions stalking a herd of water buffalo? What's the first thing the lions do? You know what they try to do, right? Strategy. They isolate. They isolate. They, they pick out a target, and the first thing they do is try to isolate and separate it from the rest of the herd. Ah, there you go. C.S. Lewis said that if he could give one piece of advice to young people, it would be this. Sacrifice whatever you have to to live as close as you can to your friends. And so, if friendship is that important, if we've seen what friendship is and we've seen that it's important, then how do we get the power to do it? And let's just finish here, and we're going to finish pretty quickly. Look down at the end of the passage. Paul summarizes. He says, be kind to one another, verse 32 Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And he goes on in the next chapter, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved you. And so you toward others as God in Christ towards you. So the source of friendship is God's friendship towards us in Christ. So the gospel is this. Jesus is the friend you need. Greater love hath no man than this, Ethan read a little while ago, than to lay down his life for his friends. So the Savior on the cross that is the friend your heart longs for. Jesus doesn't just come to us and say, I'll go with you. He comes to us and says, I'll go for you, and he did. I mean, do you see how absolutely committed he is to you? He died for you. He looked past your sins to the glory hidden underneath, and he gave his life to bring that out. And when that begins to resonate in your heart, when it begins to make sense of you, then here's what the gospel does. The gospel makes you strong, and it makes you soft, and it gives you a mission, and you need all three of those. The gospel 
makes you strong. You can fail in friendship if you're too needy, but there's a clashing, we're told, in friendship. Speaking the truth is dangerous business. Proverbs describes friendship as iron and sharp, iron, iron sharpening iron. And if you're too needy, you won't be able to do that. The fear of man is needing people more than you love them, and friendship is loving people more than you need them. And so C.S. Lewis, he said that if all you want is a friend, you'll never have any. He says the, the, poor, the poor souls that all they want is friends are the ones that can never get it because friendship, the very condition of having friends is that, the, we, that we should want something else besides friends. If community is your goal, you'll never find it. If, if you look to people for what, what only Jesus can give, you'll forever be disappointed. It's when you don't need friends that you become a great friend. That's the irony. And the gospel can do that because the promise of friendship with Jesus can make you less needy. All your emotional needs met in him, and so you can need people less, and when you need them less, you can love them more. But you see, the gospel not only makes you strong, it also makes you soft. You can fail in friendship by being too needy, or you can fail by being too selfish and emotionally distant too, too busy with your own things, not willing to flex. So you need Jesus' compassionate pursuit of you. You need to see it and have it melt your heart. He loved you so completely. He loves you in his grace, at your very worst, with as much energy and commitment as when you're at your very best. And so Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility. See, everything everything flows from humility. But lastly, the gospel also gives you a mission, and you need that too. Listen to C.S. Lewis here. He says, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where there is no mission, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about and friendship must be about something. He goes on, he says, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Jesus' love and friendship of you in the gospel can make you a great friend. And when you become a great friend, when you commit to people, when you love them at their worst by believing the very best about them, and when you patiently speak truth into their lives, you'll have friends. And here's the lesson, I think. That's the key to gospel advance in your life, in your church, and as we labor together in the city as well. If Jesus could turn us into friends, the gospel would triumph. And so let's pray he does that, can we? Let's finish and just pray. Lord Jesus, come do that. Father, thank you that from all eternity your desire for us was to walk and talk with us. We see that in the garden as you came to the first man and the first woman and you walked and you talked with them in the cool of the day. All that you have done in sending Jesus Christ, we're told in John chapter 17, was to renew that relationship that we might be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. Oh, how our hearts long for that. There's something deep inside of us so desperately desires that kind of connection. And so we thank you that you've made it possible in the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven and the sending of the Spirit that the Spirit might indwell us and indwelling us and in, and in indwelling us that he might bring us into the communion that the Father, Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed with one another from all eternity. We, we truly have resources at our disposal that we very rarely grab a hold of. And so would you come, even in these last moments, and um, convince our hearts by the power of your Spirit of your great love for us, that we would not look around us to find our emotional needs met in the, in, in the relationships that on a horizontal level in our lives, but that we would know that in you we have all we need and that that would unleash in us power to be a good friend and in becoming a good friend, that we would indeed find 
that we have the friends we need, and then we would see your gospel advancing beyond us in our city. This is what we want, but we desperately can't. We can't do it on our own, and so we desperately need you to come and work in us, and so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.